The rest of you, go ahead and open your Bibles or turn in your devices to Hebrews chapter 3, which is where we're going to be camped out this morning, Hebrews chapter 3. Now, the last few weeks in my life, maybe in your life as well, have been really crazy. Um, I've been inundated with so much going on in the world around us, in the community around us, as, you know, locally as well as nationally and, and in the world. Um, I've just been inundated with it. In fact, uh, there's so much darkness um, that feels like it's just pressing in. And, and to be honest, I sometimes I get overwhelmed by it. Maybe you do as well. Just a few days ago, I was sitting in the office, I was looking at some social media posts, and I was just slammed with the evilness, the death of sin, the deadliness of sin. I was struck with the pain of seeing people that I love who've walked away from the faith of the Bible. And every, every June, I'm reminded that we do have a real enemy. Our enemy's not of flesh and blood, but we see people doing the bidding of the evil one, and it's easy for us to get distracted by all of the sin, the confusion, the false teaching around us. And one of the most painful things is seeing those who would profess Christ with one side of their mouth give approval out of the other side of the mouth, give approval to that which cost Jesus his very life. And it devastates me mentally and emotionally to the point, to the point I've, I've taken some of these things real seriously to the point where I've, I've really backed away from social media for the rest of this month. I've, I'm, I'm still there a little bit, just kind of in the background, kind of lurking a little, um, but I've really backed away just because, um, it, just for my, own, <laughs> for my own soul, you know. I need to be reminded this morning, what, what I'm trying to tell you is I need to be reminded about Jesus this morning. I think we all need to be reminded about Jesus. When, when I was a child growing up in Iowa, um, when there was only like three channels on TV, well, and PBS, right? Um, there was this show that would be on uh, about once a year, I think. And I, I can't remember the actual name of it, so all I'm going to say it was Celebrity Circus, right? The Celebrity, or Circus of the Stars. That's it, Circus of the Stars. You guys remember this show, right? Circus of the Stars where the, you, these actors that would be on some of your favorite TV shows, they would teach them to like fly on the trapeze or walk the tightrope, right? Or tame lions or whatever else. But it was always a lot of fun to watch these people. You were, you know, the guys from the A-team doing these things or whatever. Like it was really cool, right? Generally... <clears throat> they'd be doing this trapeze or the tightrope. There'd be a safety net, you know, so if they fell, you know, they didn't have to cancel the TV show, right? Well, <clears throat> four years before I was born, in 1974, there was a Frenchman named Philippe Petit who did something really crazy. He was a high-wire act, tightrope walker, and he went out in the middle of the night. He stretched a cable between the twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. And the next morning, he goes out, kind of early in the morning, and walks back and forth across between those two buildings on this cable to the awe of the crowds watching below. Now, the question you've got to wonder, whenever you see these types of stunts, you know, um, maybe you see him do that. Maybe some of you grew up watching Evil Knievel, whatever. But the question you want to ask on this, this 
particularly of this tightrope walker, is how did he keep from falling to his death that high up? I mean, I would think a bird or a little wind and I'm over, I'm gone, right? First of all, I'm not getting up there anyway, but, right? But if you were to ask one of these type of performers, they would tell you the secret is to keep your eyes on the destination and not look down. And our passage for today would remind us to keep focused on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Consider Jesus. Keep our minds considering Jesus to keep from following, falling. Excuse me. And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, and you can follow along as I read. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it to our lives. Dear God, as we come to your word, let us come with open hearts. Let us come uh, to be changed by your word. We pray your word as it has gone out that it would do exactly what you send it to do. We know it will. We have faith in that. We trust that, Jesus, that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways, coming and going, Jesus. Cut us to the heart this morning. Change us. Help us take you at your word. I pray that, that there would be nothing that's just of me, that I would decrease and that you, you would increase, that you would be big here, Jesus. And that at the end of the day, that, that what people can say about what happens here is that you spoke to your people in your word, Jesus. Let people remember you, not me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This passage is incredible, and I'm going to go through some things that that I think if we're not careful, we would kind of zoom past them reading this, trying to get on, because get on to the next part of the passage, and we just come out of the end of of chapter 2, and the first one begins with a transition word. So we have to remember what came before it, because it says, therefore... It's the author connecting what he's about to say with what he has already written. He's using it to say that in light of the great salvation provided, we should consider Jesus. So that's point number one if you're taking notes. Consider Jesus because he is the merciful and faithful high priest that we heard about last week. He is the one who has tasted death for everyone 
and he alone is the source of our salvation. Because of that, because of what the author just wrote, he says, therefore, because of, in other words, because of all of that, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The author here, he begins, he says, therefore, holy brothers, he, he begins by referring to his audience as holy brothers. And he tells them that they share in a heavenly calling. Now, a lot of times in our reading, we will just, this is, these are two of those things I was talking about. We'll just breeze by these descriptors, right? The, the description of people like these, like holy brothers and, and those who share in a heavenly calling. And we'll breeze by those descriptors uh, because the, we're getting on to the rest of the passage, but the author uses those specific terms for a reason. These authors, nothing's in the Bible just for the heck of it, okay? It's there for a reason. The author uses these specific terms for a reason. He's communicating an idea about identity and purpose in the people that he is addressing. Holy is used before brothers to make emphasis that the blood of Christ has sanctified them and cleansed the church. In fact, Jesus is what makes them holy, right? So he had, because he, earlier we, we had read about him sanctifying his people. Jesus would sanctify his brothers, right? His brothers and sisters. Make holy. So he refers to them as holy brothers. It is by the blood of Christ alone that people can be made holy. And when he says holy brothers, he's identifying them with a new identity and a new family for those who are in Christ. So he's saying holy brothers, those who've been adopted into the family of God through Christ and sanctified, made holy by him. The fact that these blood-bought brothers and sisters, members of the family of God, also have a shared heavenly calling accents that God has acted to rescue a specific group of people, the church. Jesus makes us what we are. God transforms us into his people. It's only believers that compose the church. There are no, there's no such thing as a holy unbeliever. For it is only those who are in Christ who are made holy. This is really important for us to understand. No one shares in this heavenly calling who is unrepentant. In fact, it's impossible for anyone to be unrepentant who shares in this heavenly calling. Being part of Christ's church requires repentance and faith. This is keeping with the message that Christ himself preached when he was here on earth, right? said, Mark 1, 14 through 15, says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So right there, repent and believe, repentance and faith, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember that based on chapter 2, verse 10, we know that God intends to bring many sons to glory. If you missed that last week, you should go back, or two weeks ago, you should go back and re-listen to the podcast. God intends to bring many sons to glory. Jesus was sent on a mission to bring many sons to glory, and the trajectory or the direction of this mission, of this calling, is heavenward. 
Heaven is where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and where he calls us or beckons us from. This language of calling being used for the original audience of Hebrews, the Hellenistic Jews that were the first ones to to be the ones who were recipients of this letter, this language of calling echoes the pilgrimage of the Israelites who sought to enter into a divine rest. We're going to talk about divine rest in the coming week. But this language would have connected specifically with the Jewish Christians reading this as its first audience. You'll see that throughout the book of Hebrews too, where the language that the author used specifically is targeted and aimed at who he is writing it to. So as we consider Jesus, it's important that we remember that we need to consider Jesus as the Scriptures portray Him. We need to consider Jesus as the Scriptures portray Him. This exhortation to consider Jesus in verse 1, to consider Jesus, carries with it the idea of meditation or thinking on Jesus focusing on Jesus. See, Jesus is the focal point. He's the central person of Christianity, which is why it's called Christianity. The person and work of Jesus are absolute, uh, or excuse me, are the absolute best objects for Christian meditation. We are to think on him, consider his works and his goodness of his character. We should glory and be in awe of his sacrifice and the truth that he tasted death so that we could be set free from the fear of death and the power of sin. And when the world looks dark, Christian, when the world around us looks like it's in in chaos, consider Jesus. Focus on him. But consider him as the scriptures portray him. This is important. Never consider him outside of the biblical and theological context in which he is presented to us in Scripture. You don't get to just make stuff up about Jesus. Okay? We have to consider Jesus and think on Jesus within the context that he is revealed to us in Scripture. God's Word. This is God having spoken to us, speaking to us, So we must consider him rightly according to how the Bible reveals him and his character. We don't get to just make stuff up about Jesus. As the author instructs us to consider Jesus, he continues to identify Jesus in various ways. Now here, he is referred to as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, when you read that, at least when I read that, the word apostle in reference to Jesus gives me a little bit of pause at first, right? Because that's how we refer to those who had been with Jesus and ministered to the early church, right? With the apostles, right? We, we, we're familiar with that term. The Bible's familiar with that term. However, the Greek term that's used here for apostle means someone who has been sent or sent one. It just means sent one or someone who's been sent. Whereas the apostles of the early church were sent out by Jesus, Jesus had been sent by the Father on a mission to rescue the church from sin and death and to restore us to the Father. The text here tells us that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. 
He was faithful in his service to God the Father and stuck to the mission that he was sent to accomplish. And last week, we focused in on Jesus as our high priest who makes atonement for our sin, and, and, and he's named here high priest as well. And the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, will continue to unfold this further on in the letter. And then it talks about Jesus, not just being apostle and high priest, but apostle and high priest, of our confession, of our confession. Our confession refers to a declaration or a profession of belief in Jesus. In Scripture, we have the earliest Christian confessions recorded. Okay, we can see, read through Scripture, through the New Testament, we can read some of those earliest confessions of Christ that include Jesus is the Christ, that He is Lord, and that He is the Son of God. And when we look at those early confessions, they really summarize the early Christian teachings. And later, the author of Hebrews will go on to exhort the readers or his hearers, as this was probably read aloud to them, to hold fast to their confession, hold fast to their confession. But first, the author transitions to talking about Moses, to talking about Moses, who was a key figure in, you know, the Jewish history. And so what we need to do is look at Moses. The author wants his, his readers, the people who heard this read, to look at Moses in light of Jesus. Look at Moses in light of Jesus. Now, why is this a point? Well, this is a point because it's important, and you're going to see in a minute why it's important. Because it actually doesn't just tell us about looking at Moses, but how we should look at all of the Old Testament. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Moses is a key figure in Jewish history and in the Old Testament narrative. He was faithful to God in spite of facing some pretty extreme opposition and a lot of straight-up disappointment from the Israelites who he was leading. It says he's leading them out of slavery from Egypt, right? And toward the promised land, they grumbled and wanted to return to Egypt where they were slaves rather than follow Moses. This one always gets me. Whenever I read about this, it always gets me that, that the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt, and God does the whole ten plagues deal with Moses and Pharaoh, and let my people go, and he parts the waters of the Red Sea, and they walk across on dry land, and then Pharaoh's army rushes in, and it's, it's just demolished by the water and the waves crushing in over them. And the Israelites are freed. And they get out there and they're following Moses. They start grumbling and complaining because they'd rather, we want to go back to Egypt because they'd rather go back and be slaves. They're like, well, at least we had food while we were there. You were slaves! And they'd rather go back. Numbers uh, 11, 4 through 6 says this. Now the rabble that was among them, stop, I like that, the rabble. Anyway, Now the rabble that was among them had a, had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So they had what God had provided them to eat. They were taken care of and nourished, but they didn't have meat, and they were like, Well, we want to go, oh, that we could go back to Egypt. It's like they forgot that 
Pharaoh was really bad to him and made him work really, really hard and not give him much to work with. There were also those who challenged Moses' position of authority over the Jews. Numbers 12, 1 through 2. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And, And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. So he's facing disappointment, grumbling, and straight-up opposition from some of those closest to him. Moses was faithful even though he did not understand everything. He couldn't have had all of the information, and yet he stayed faithful despite the opposition he faced, the disappointment he faced. Now that's not to say Moses was perfect. Here in this passage it focuses on his faithfulness, but Moses certainly had a sin nature as all humanity does except for Jesus. And he did sin, he did, was disobedient at times. In fact, he ended up not being able to lead them all the way into the promised land. Deuteronomy 18, excuse me, let me say this first. Moses' life and ministry did something, though, and it's why it's included here in Hebrews. Moses' life and ministry displayed the superiority of Christ. Remember the main theme in all of Hebrews is Jesus is better Right? That's what we titled this whole sermon series through Hebrews. Jesus is better. Moses' life and his ministry displayed the superiority of Christ. In fact, his ministry and his life were meant to point away from him, away from Moses, and toward the Messiah. Moses' ministry existed to testify to the things to come. To testify to the things to come come. The Bible says uh, in uh, verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 3, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Deuteronomy 18 15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So, Moses' ministry, his life, everything that went on existed not to point to himself as someone to be emulated, but to point to Christ, to the coming Messiah. The priesthood in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the entire Old Covenant system, uh, the, the entire Old Covenant system serves the same purpose as this, to point to Jesus the Messiah. The Old Testament is like a giant yellow blinking arrow pointing to Jesus. Romans 3.21 says this. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament is a giant, giant yellow arrow pointing to Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, Jesus shares with some of his followers who didn't recognize him all about how the scriptures are about him. And friends, the Old Testament was the only scripture they had at the time. So he's sharing about himself using the Old Testament. He's sharing Jesus with them from the Old Testament. They should, excuse me, that should, that should greatly impact the way that you and I read the Old Testament. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews wants of us. He wants us to think of Moses, and for that matter, all the Old Testament, in light of Jesus Christ. This passage shows the superiority of Jesus over Moses, who the Hebrews would have very high regard for. Remember, the Hebrews, they'd appeal to Moses. like They have a high regard for Moses. In verse 3, though, we see Jesus is counted as worthy of more glory than Moses. As the divine Son, Jesus is worth infinite amounts of glory. It is possible that the audience of this book of Hebrews may have been struggling with Christ's superiority over the law of Moses and, as we saw a few weeks ago, over angels as well. Hence, the ideas that the author communicates in these first three chapters. And the point is not to emulate Moses, but that we should look to Jesus who is superior in every way. If you thought that was good back then, let me show you something that's better, and it's Jesus. We should consider Jesus and hold fast to Jesus, who is faithful over God's house, not just as a servant like Moses, but as a son. And we see that juxtaposition of Moses, who was faithful as a servant, but Jesus, who's faithful as a son. We can all say that uh, in that situation, a servant or a son, which one is the better relationship to have in relation to the master? the son rather than the servant. We must hold fast to Jesus who is able to save and sustain. Hold fast to Jesus. This final main point I'm centering on verse 6. Hold fast to Jesus. The introduction I talked about how I need to be reminded of Jesus. We all need to be reminded of Jesus. We need to be reminded of the gospel. Um, there, there are whole books written on preaching the gospel to yourself daily. Reminding ourselves, rehearsing the gospel, practicing the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves so that we hold fast to Jesus. Verse 6 introduces us to another major theme in Hebrews. And that's the theme of warning against failing to persevere in the faith. Verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 3. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The little word if in there should catch your attention, catches mine. Being his house is to say, being his people, being the people of God. So we are the people of God if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This passage, as well as the, the whole of Scripture, teaches that only those who persevere in the faith will be saved, and that all who have genuine faith will persevere. It's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, okay? And it means that all those who have genuine faith will persevere in the faith. And all those who persevere in the faith will be saved, okay? This is, uh, I've mentioned this before, but I grew up, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, and we had this little saying uh, that was once saved, always saved, meaning if you had become a Christian, you were still a Christian. You couldn't lose. You couldn't, you couldn't, just because, just like you couldn't 
you couldn't do enough good things to earn that salvation. You can't do enough bad things to lose it once you've got it, okay? Once saved, always saved. Now, when I was in high school, we had a missionary named Jody Ratcliffe who came and spent the summer with us, and he modified that statement. I really like how he modified it to the point that here, a lot of years later, 25, 26, 27, however many years later, uh, I'm still using this statement. And that is, instead of once saved, always saved, uh, he said, if saved, always saved. And I think that's interesting and, and appropriate because the Bible uses the word if, right, in some of these situations. This passage teaches that only those who persevere in the faith will be saved and all who have genuine faith will persevere. We must have confidence in and boast in our hope in Jesus Christ is our only hope in life or death. And it is only Christ that can save us. Our works cannot save us, and our works cannot keep us saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we're not saying that you earn it. We're not saying that you act to keep it. It is a free gift. It is the work of God. But we come into a saving relationship with Jesus when God has convicted us of sin, and we repent of our sin and believe the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, died in my place for my sin on the cross. He was a, a substitute and took the wrath of God that my sin deserved. He he absorbed it on my behalf like a big sponge, and in exchange gives me his righteousness. He died for my sin, and three days later he rose from the grave, and that proves that the sacrifice worked, that God accepted it, and that it is sufficient for every sin. He sanctifies me, and that means that he makes me holy and set apart for his use. And those who have had genuine faith in Jesus will persevere in that faith till the end. The idea is that we should hold fast and make sure that we are examining our lives and considering everything in light of Jesus. We are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope to hold fast to Jesus. We must persevere in confidence in the truth of our hope in Jesus Christ our boasting must only be in the gospel and only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moeller writes that by faith we confidently trust that Christ's righteousness belongs to us. He is our only boast. He is our unfailing hope. He's our unfailing hope. So if we boast, if we're confident in anything, we hold fast to our confidence, our boast only in Christ. So how do we hold fast? How do we hold fast? How do we stay focused on Jesus? How do we consider Jesus? Well, when we lose our focus, just like the tightrope walker at the beginning of the message, who loses their focus on their destination and looks down, they fall. Peter found this out on the water. He found this to be true. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. I want to move towards wrapping up by reading this account. 
immediately he, stop right there, that's Jesus, that he is Jesus, okay? I'm going to go back. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night,
So most of 